if you're the kiddos, you can guys can come on down here. We've got the, oh, the Brocks are up today. Yeah. Three-year-olds all the way through kindergarten. All right. Exodus chapter 3, we'll finish the chapter today. We'll pick it up um, in verse 16. God still speaking to Moses says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. I pray today that we see that, that every time we've been shown mercy, that that also comes with a mission. And so today, for those of us as believers, that we would see that, that we've been given mercy through the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been given eternal life. We've been made right with you. Uh, and then that comes with a mission to go into the world and tell others about what you've done. So I pray today that that would be heavy on the hearts of us as believers. I pray for those in here that don't know you, that today is, as the gospel is preached and as it goes forth, that it would change lives and it would save and it would draw men and women to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week we, we looked at the call of, of Moses from, from the burning bush, right? And, and if you remember, God tells Moses who he is. God says, I am who I am. Or as we said, God says, I be who I be. That I am the self-defining God. That people don't define me. That there's no one who can contain me. That I am who I am. That I am defined by who I am. And what we see in that passage are, are two things. We see the complete character of God. We see a God who is transcendent, a God who is above us, a God who is holy, a God who is not our buddy, not our friend, not our amigo, a God who we do not trifle with. But then at the same time, we see a God who is imminent and near and cares for us and draws near to us as human beings. And so God tells Moses, because that's who I am, I'm sending you now, Moses, to go and get my people. And if you remember, Moses wasn't too happy about that. Moses is like, well, well who am I? Like, like, like who am I that, that I should go get the people? Like, remember, I was already there, God. Didn't go well. I killed the man. They're probably still looking for me 40 years later. 
Uh, and then also I tried to lead the Hebrews. They weren't having any of that. So who am I to go back? And I love God's response because remember, God's response was not to give him a pep talk. It was not to raise his self-esteem. The only thing God said was, yeah, I'll be with you. I'll be with you, Moses. So God in his mercy has chosen a murderer, a failure at leadership named Moses to go and get his people. He's shown Moses mercy, and he's given him a mission. God doesn't need Moses, but Moses desperately needs God. And see, it's the same for you and I. If you're a believer in here, God has shown you mercy. When God calls sinners to himself, it is an act of mercy. It is an act of grace. And every time he calls sinners to himself and shows them mercy, that always comes with a mission. Now, oftentimes, we want the mercy. We love that part, right? I got my get out of hell free card. Me and God, we're good. But we don't want the mission that goes with it. We want the blessing of salvation, but we don't want the burden of the mission, right? That's too hard. We don't want that part. And so Moses needs to learn, as we must, that salvation never terminates on us. Grace never finishes its work in our hearts alone, okay? So I've told you this for five years. I'm going to keep saying it until it finally sticks. You were not saved to just sit on your blessed assurance. Okay? You weren't. You weren't saved to just come to church to do, oh, hey, how are you, brother? Good to see you. Yeah, oh, yeah, life's good. And do that every week and then never leave this building and go about being on mission for Jesus Christ. The saved are always sent. Always. And so if God has made you a child, he, his child, sorry, he does so to make you his instrument. So Moses is sent. And if you look in verse 16, we see that Moses is sent and he's given a message to proclaim. Look at verse 16. So go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and and honey. So he says, hey, I want you to go back and I want you to gather up all the, all the elders of Israel. Okay? He does that because the best way to communicate to a large group of people is to get its leaders, right? Bring them all together. Tell them, this is what God has told me. And in verse 16, he repeats himself. If you look back at verse 8, he says the exact same thing as he did in verse 8. The reason that God does that is he wants Moses to know and he wants the people to know that this is not Moses' interpretation of what he heard God say, okay? He doesn't want the people to think that Moses has been out with the sheep too long uh, and that he's seeing things and he's hallucinating, that these are the words of God himself. And he wants them to know this message because if you look at that, that message in verse 16, it contains wonderful truths for the people of Israel, So he reminds them once again that, hey guys, I'm the God of the past. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I promised them salvation. I'm the God of the present who is going to bring you up out of Egypt. And I am the God of the future who will bring you into the promised land. He's reiterating the fact that this is the God who is active in history past, in the present, and in the future. 
you and I as believers have come to know the name of this same God through Jesus Christ, who himself has said he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the God of the past who entered into human history as a man to save sinners by dying on a cross and then rising again for our salvation. Jesus is the God of the present who's watching over us, who knows our suffering, and also, check this out, including the ways that we've been sinned against. And Jesus Christ is also the God of the future who's promised to not only save us from our sin, but to bring us to glory. And one day, he will return to right all wrongs. Right? We sang it in that song. One day, all of the sadness will come to an end, and we will reign with this God forever. So God tells Moses, that's who I am. Now I want you to go and tell the people that very message. And in verse 18, I love this because God gives Moses some really good assurance. He says, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So you're going to go gather the elders and guess what, Moses? They're going to listen to you. Gosh, I wish he would have told me that before I came a pastor, right? Go get them, kid. I promise they're going to listen to you, right? They will. They will. And then God tells him exactly what to say. He says, take the elders, go to Pharaoh and say the Lord has met with us, so please let us go three days into the wilderness to worship our God. Now, that's a really surprising message because God's already promised to lead his people all the way out. Not just three days out, but all the way out. And so what they seem to be asking for right here is just a you know, nice three-day weekend, you know, a little President's Day weekend. And if you study this, it's really interesting because a lot of people have had problems with this. In fact, you'll find some people who say that God is lying or that God has not been up front with Pharaoh. So by saying three days, he's not giving Pharaoh the whole truth. And some people have tried to kind of respond to this by saying, well, the, the, the elders in Moses didn't really say anything false. They, they just asked to make a three-day journey. Uh, they didn't say where. And besides, Pharaoh had no right to know the truth. He was keeping God's people enslaved, and that was wrong. Others say that three days journey was just uh, a very long trip, right? In, in the ancient world, to say three days journey just meant like a really long trip, right? It's like living in Spearman. About anywhere you want to go? Eh, about six hours. Right? Six hours. Some have said that, that they were engaged in an ancient form of, of bargaining and, and haggling, right? Like a used car salesman or something like that. And I think if you look at all these solutions, listen, they're perfectly fine and they have some merit, but, but really what's important in the elder's request, it's not the length of time. It's the purpose. Okay? We get hung up on the length of time. That's not the, the important thing. It's the purpose. See, they're asking permission to go and meet their God. They are asking permission to go offer sacrifices for their sins. They're asking permission to go and glorify God. So the real question was not how long they would be gone, but whether Pharaoh was going to let them go glorify God at all. That's the question. See, God intended to lead his people out. He already said, hey, this is going to happen. You are going to get liberated. You're coming all the way out, back to Mount Horeb. 
But by starting with a weekend getaway, what he's doing is he is able to expose Pharaoh's deep hatred of God's glory. See, even if it was unreasonable to let his entire labor force leave the country, it was not unreasonable to ask for a few days of of religious freedom. And what we're going to see, though, is that Pharaoh won't even give God three days of glory. He knew that if he granted this request, it would show that the glory didn't belong to him at all, but to God. And listen, that's the same choice that every one of us have to make in this room every day, right? Are we going to live our lives for the glory of God, or are we going to live our lives for our own glory? It's what's going on with, with, with Pharaoh. And see, what you begin to see happen right here in chapter 3 is there's going to be this interplay through the rest of the book between our choice and God's sovereignty. So, so Pharaoh has been given a choice. Give God the glory, Pharaoh. Give him three days, give God the glory. And Pharaoh's not going to do that. So look in verse 19 at what God says. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. God knew Pharaoh's heart was hard. He also knew that Pharaoh would refuse to cooperate and let the people go. And God knew what it was going to take to bring the people out. See, verse 19 shows us that the God who saves and sins also knows the future. And listen, this is something we have to be very, very clear on, brothers and sisters. You have to understand this. Because you'll hear so many people act like the future is not something that God knows. That that he's upstairs just waiting for you and I to make a decision before he acts. Right? You, You hear this all the time when people say that God looks down the corridors of time and God knows who's gonna choose him and and who won't. But but when people say that, you're making God dependent on your choice. You're saying God's not going to act until I do something. So I have to do something first, and then God goes, oh, I'll act now because they did something. See, see, when I was at Wayland, there were several who believed, in fact, this was taught in some classes, this theory of the openness of God, or maybe you've heard it said open theism, which just teaches this, that God is open to possibilities, that his plans change with circumstances. But, but see, the God of the Bible, the, the God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush, is not a God who makes things up. So it's not like God just came down into the burning bush going, boy, Moses has got a lot of choices today. I sure hope he makes the right choice and comes by me today. I just, I just hope. If not, then tomorrow I'll just have to go to another bush and hope he comes by there. No, no, no. God knew exactly where Moses was going to go. He brought Moses to where he was at. See, he's the God who ordains whatever happens according to the eternal counsel of his perfect will. Jay read this verse earlier, Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying... My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all, the, all my purpose. See, God knew exactly what was going to happen. Everything was going to happen according to the plan of God. Now listen, that doesn't mean that Pharaoh didn't have a choice. 
Pharaoh did have a choice. Give God three days. He's not going to do it. In fact, whenever we get to the plagues, you know what you're going to see? First five plagues, who hardens his heart? Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. The last five plagues, God says, okay, you're not going to do it. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Right? And I see some of you are looking at me like, like, how does that work? Our free will choice and God's sovereignty. I don't know. Okay? I don't. Charles Spurgeon said those two things are two doctrines that can't be melded together on any human anvil, but they work, okay? So in other words, you and I need to be comfortable with the tension that that creates in our lives. That means that we can't put God in a box saying we've got him all figured out, that he's above us, he's transcendent, he knows more than you and I. God says he's not going to let you go, so I will stretch my hand out and I will strike Egypt with wonders that I will do in that. After that, he's going to let you go. If you want to, you can underline, stretch out my hand in verse 20. I I read a really fascinating scholarly article about how so many of the the ancient uh, Egyptian texts described Pharaoh as the one who destroys enemies with his arm. That was a big thing. They, they, they repeated that all the time. Anytime a pharaoh would conquer a nation, well, he did it with his arm or he built things with his arm. And that was a huge thing to them. And the arm of pharaoh was believed to have been strengthened by the supreme god Amun or most of the time by the war god Seth. The symbol of Seth was a serpent. Once again, we see God going to battle against his old enemy, the serpent. Once again, we see God going to crush the head of the snake, just like he promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Philip Ryken says that Pharaoh's arm was too weak to wrestle with the arm of God, and God proved his strength by bending Pharaoh's will to his own. And we know that he will do that by stretching out his arm, working through Moses, who God uses the phrase over and over again, stretch out your hand against the Egyptians. And after all that's done, after God has shown that he is supreme, that he is the true God, look what's going to happen in verse 21. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing... You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. See, the Egyptians are going to do more than just let them go. The the Hebrew uh, suggests an expulsion, that they're going to be shoving them out the door. Okay? Do you got any Dr. Seuss fans in here? Yeah, some of you elementary teachers. My my kids have this one Dr. Seuss book called uh, Marvin K. Mooney, You Must Go Now. Have you ever read that one? Like, we read it all the time in our house, but we say Cash Glenn Mackey. That's what we do whenever we do it, right? And so the whole story is about, about a little kid, right? And it starts out going, hey, Marvin K. Mooney, the time has come, the time is now, but you must go now. And then the whole book's going, I don't care how you go. You can go by car. You can go by train. You can go by ski. I don't care, but you must go, 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 right? This is what's going on right here, is that the Egyptians are going to say, hey, the time has come, the time is now. Get out of here. We want you gone. And when they leave, it says they're going to be given some walking around money. Like they're going to leave with a bunch of stuff. God told Abraham this would happen. Genesis chapter 15, verse 14. God's speaking to Abraham, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. See, he knows the end from the beginning. 
See, usually when a nation went to war, it was plundered by mighty warriors, and usually those warriors tended to be men. But God says Egypt was going to be plundered by women, signifying a complete and total victory, right? There's not a nation out there that wants to go, well, a bunch of girls beat us up. That's what God's saying is happening right there. And we'll find out later that all of this wealth will be used to build the tabernacle, that the Egyptians will be plundered for the glory of God. See, the plundering of the Egyptians served to demonstrate divine justice. So this is God's way of making sure his people got paid for all that work that they did for Pharaoh for all those years. Later on, when God gave the law, he declared that Hebrew slaves were never to be sent away empty-handed, but always compensated for their labor. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 15, it says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. Man, that cough's getting me too, Jay. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed, You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. See, one of the principles of divine justice is that the redemption of a slave requires the payment of a gift. See, years later when the Israelites are going to be freed from Babylon, they're going to be given gold and silver for their trip. It's no different than you and I, brothers and sisters. When Jesus stepped down out of heaven and lived the life we should have lived, when he went to the cross and died in our place for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins, and then when he rose again three days later, liberating from us our, from our sins, you know what he did? He lavished us with gifts. Ephesians 4, 7 through 8, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Jesus plundered the devil through the cross. He set us free, and he gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit to serve as a bounty for our liberation. We've been shown mercy because of Jesus, and then he gives us a mission. See, years later, After Jesus rose again, the disciples, like Moses, will find themselves on a mountain. So so Moses sees the glory of God reflected in a burning bush. The disciples see the glory of God reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. Instead of a burning bush, we see see God in perfect union with human flesh, bearing the imprints of his self-giving love at Calvary. Nails were driven into Jesus for their deliverance. Jesus acted to save and liberate them. And guess what? Like the Israelites, they did nothing. God did it all. It's the same with us. On this mountain, just like Horeb, there's a fresh revelation of the name of God. And it's not I am who I am, but this time it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's name displayed in its fullness in Christ. God standing before them in Christ. And just like Moses, having seen and heard all of this, God then sends his disciples on a mission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We've been shown mercy. And now we have a mission to go into the world and to tell others about Jesus Christ. To tell others that they're in sin and they're separated from God and they can never do enough to fix that relationship. But Jesus can and Jesus did. We're called to make disciples. That means we're to be helping others grow in their faith. We're to be meeting together as the body of Christ to strengthen and to lift one another up. We're to spend time with one another, doing life and carrying one another's burdens and celebrating with one another. Right? And and that's the area that that we still got to work on. We see pockets of it happening in our church where people are growing closer to one another and spending time together and doing life together in Bible study, but then there's still others of us that are just separating ourselves out. We're just holding up. We need to get better at that. We're to baptize new believers and then tell, eat, t- and then teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded, which means this, listen, that we're to strive after holiness, brothers and sisters. Our salvation is not an excuse just to do nothing. It's to strive after holiness, to be made more and more like Jesus, listen, while resting in the grace of God. And maybe you're like Moses. You feel inadequate for the job. What did Jesus just say? I'll be with you, even to the end of the age. See, our God who knows the beginning from the end, our God who's already told us how it will end, just like he did for Moses, has said he will be with us till the very end of the age. That means we can share the gospel, no matter how good your presentation is. It could be terrible, but it doesn't matter. God's with you. Share the gospel, right? We can endure hardship and suffering knowing that God is with us. We can disciple others, and then we can trust God for the growth because God is with us. We can strive after holiness while resting in grace. Why? Because God is with us. See, you and I have been shown mercy through Jesus Christ, and now he gives us a mission to go into the world and tell others about him, to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you've given us. Thank you that when you show us mercy, it always comes with a mission. That our salvation never terminates on us. But Father, it was intended to go out and go beyond us to the entire world. Father, I thank you for the parallels that we see between Moses on the mountain and the burning bush and between Jesus and the disciples. And so I pray that as believers... That, 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 Father, we would realize that we are on a mission, that, that, that here in Spearman, Texas, we have so many people who are lost and dying and going to hell. We have so many people who don't know you. And that, Father, you would open our eyes to see that and that everywhere we go, that we would be on mission looking for those opportunities to tell others about you. I pray that we would be about the task of discipleship, of growing closer to one another, of encouraging one another, of doing life together with one another. Father, of of caring for one another right here in the body of Christ. Father, I pray that we can be people who strive after holiness while resting in your grace. If there's anyone in here today that doesn't know you, I pray that as the gospel was preached and proclaimed, that you have opened eyes, that you've opened their hearts to hear and receive the gospel, and that today they would put their faith and trust in you.
That they wouldn't leave until they grab a friend or, or come and talk to me and just say, hey, I didn't know Jesus when I came in here, but today he saved me and he's changed me. Father, we love you and I thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the mission that you've given us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please.